Session six, roadside spirituality. In this session, I want to return to the two questions that I posed at the end of the last session about drive-through uh, restaurants and drive-in church or drive-in movie theaters, and turn them around on the church. Uh, what motivations drive the drive-in and drive-through churches, and what values and habits do they end up reinforcing, whether intentionally or not? This, I think, will help us better understand the type of spirituality fostered by these types of churches. Thus, uh, the title of this session, Roadside Spirituality. First, uh, some comments about the motivations or the felt needs that drive the existence of, of drive-through and drive-in churches. At the heart of things, these churches aim to be outreach-oriented or seeker-friendly. Um, they're not this way just to be trendy or hip or innovative. There's a particular theological and I would say evangelistic goal in having these different forms of churches. It comes out of a deep commitment to being inclusive towards non-churched people, to make sure that, that church, the experience of church, the experience of worship is more palatable and attractive to someone who maybe didn't grow up in the church, or to those who have been turned off to more traditional forms and expressions of the church. Theologically speaking, uh, they're living out, oops, let me go back here, they're living out Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 9.22, which we also talked about in our discussion of the Bible zine, I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I think that would be the theological label or point that I would place on these curious forms of church. Consider, for instance, Woodland Drive Church, that one church that had the object in the mirror is closer than it appears, that, that one. Um, if you go on its uh, website, it actually has an explanation of the sorts of people who tend to come to the drive-in experience. Um, and uh, it, most of the testimonials that they have there are, come from people who have, um, maybe are uncomfortable with large crowds, have some sort of disability or allergy or other health problems that actually makes going to church quite difficult. But sometimes there's some other testimonials about people who have been turned off by church. And I thought this one was worth reading. Patty had dropped out of church and drifted away from God. Her church had treated her like poison when she filed for divorce. But there was an aching need in her heart to develop a stronger relationship with Jesus through word and worship. After many years of avoiding coming to grips with that issue, she came to the drive-in with a friend. She found love and acceptance from the other worshipers, and most of all, love and acceptance from God. In this story, someone needed a different sort of church experience to reignite their relationship with God. Another story comes from Ashes to Go. They have uh, a website where you can reflect, uh, post stories uh, and reflections on a, on a blog, and one blogger uh, actually raised the question of whether it was right to make Ash Wednesday so, quote-unquote, easy to experience. Uh, the blogger wondered whether it was right to separate the ashes from the worship of the church community. Maybe some of you wondered that same question. But then she wrote this, and I found it actually quite beautiful and moving. Ashes to go becomes more and more important to me every year. I'm not at the train station. She's someone who's giving out the ashes. I'm not at the train station for the people who come to church all the time. I'm there for the people who can't come to church because their work is not flexible enough, because they have been hurt by the church, or simply bored by the church into believing that the truths and actions of our faith don't matter in daily life and the real world. 
We go out because the community defined by the doors, walls, and especially hours of the church is not the target of the gospel or God's call to repentance. We recognize God's children in our unknown neighbors, deepening our definition of community in a way that begins to reflect the kingdom of God just a bit better than the faces in our pews could alone. Yes, it's about gathering the community. She means the church community. But it's also about meeting God's community, ungathered, and letting grace happen. I actually think it's quite a wonderful statement. And if that's the motivation for Ashes to go, I'm all for it. And in fact, I would say the same about the Woodland Drive-In as well. I think it's uh, whether that story resonates for you or not, it is a powerful example of someone finding a different point of connection through worship with God in that place. And all of this, and for all of these reasons, I think there's much to affirm about this impulse to think about creative forms and expressions of the church that might resonate with the unchurched. That I love about this sort of roadside spirituality. A second point, and a smaller point, which is also by way of defense of these sorts of churches. The Bible defines the church as the body of Christ, but the Bible does not provide a blueprint for what that body should look like, particularly its physical exterior forms. The early church, to be sure, could not have imagined something like Willow Creek, but then again, they couldn't have imagined the majestic cathedrals of the Middle Ages either. Both would have been equally strange to the early disciples and apostles of Jesus. The form of the church, for that matter, has not, or has not been static through history. In the early church, uh, people met in houses or sometimes in catacombs or in other humble buildings. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there were cathedrals, but there were also small wooden shacks that people met in for churches. In the Reformation period, there were magnificent churches, but they were completely unadorned and simple. Gone were the crucifixes and the, the stained glass and other forms of art in the Reformed period. Even today, we don't have to turn to drive through or drive in churches to notice that the form of churches vary. We could simply go on a walking tour of Atlanta or any other city and just look and say, gosh, these churches don't look alike. In fact, if you didn't know their signs and if you had someone who had no experience with church, I don't think they would think they're the same type of institution. Right? You would see different buildings and think that one has nothing to do with that one. So in a way, all that I'm saying is the diversity we find in the drive through and drive-in churches is actually part of the history of the church itself. And there's nothing uh, inherently wrong with reinventing forms of the church because the Bible, after all, does not provide a blueprint. So those two points, and I think, both fall in a category of supporting or at least affirming the impulse or motivation behind why we have these sorts of churches. Now, what about the values and habits that these sorts of churches might reinforce or inculcate among its viewers? Here's where I think uh, my evaluation, at least, turns uh, to a slightly more critical perspective, or at least can identify a few more problems. In particular, I want to mention four potential problems uh, by way of kind of what is lost in your experience of God primarily, but also the community called the church when we have these different forms. Now again, I want to emphasize that I don't think it's the intention of the creators and leaders of these churches to, to, to not have these things, but I think it's collateral damage. I think it's an unintended consequences sometimes of these particular forms. So I want to name four of them, uh, and, and for each we'll think a little bit together about what it means. So issue one, or maybe question one, the church or the church. 
Now, I have to ask a grammar question, and then I'll have it make sense to you in a second. When do you use lowercase c, church, and when do you use uppercase c for church, right? You can write it both ways, lowercase c and uppercase c. So this is my grammar question of the night. Uh, when do you use which? Okay, so we have a, one vote for lowercase building and uppercase body, so universal. Agreements, disagreements, other views? Okay. Okay, so that's actually the opposite of, of, of Margaret's idea. So there's, it, it, it's a little, uh, it, we know that maybe one goes to one, the other goes to the other, but it's hard to know which one goes with which. Any other ideas? Uh -huh. with a capital T and a more particular, it's a small or a generic or a general, uh -huh. it's a small Okay, so, so here's where, and, and, and I've actually have to say that I've seen all of these done, right? I've, I've seen it done both ways, actually. Um, but as a former director of the Writing Center at the Candler School of Theology, I'm particular about these sorts of things. <laughs> and I tend to follow as my Bible in, things, in all things grammar, the Chicago Manual of Style. And this is what the Chicago Manual of Style teaches us, and, and, and it's going to be our working document for tonight. Little C Church, it's the overarching idea of Christianity or the universal body of believers. So this is the broadest conceptual category according to Chicago Manual of Style. So we would use lowercase c when we say things like church and state, the early church, church fathers, or church in any sense where we just mean the collectivity of all believers. Now conversely, Chicago Manual of Style tells us that you use big C church in three instances. The particular name of an institution, a denomination, or a local congregation. So we would say Church of England, big C, Methodist Church, big C, and then uh, First Presbyterian Church, big C. So that's how Chicago Manual of Style lays it out. And I'm going to go with it, because if Chicago Manual says it, it's good enough for me. Now, again, th this is not a, a, a session on grammar and capitalization. Why do we care? Well, the question for us, and the reason I ask this, is because we want to think about what's the relationship of the little c church to the big c church, that is, to the particular congregation, big c church, and the church universal, the little c church. Because what I want to argue is that these drive-through, drive-in churches conceive of that relationship quite differently than theology, classic theology has, and I think there's a problem to it. Here's how I think it works in the little, excuse me, in drive-in and drive-through churches, which by and large are representative of a more broadly evangelical tradition. In this model, in this model, uh, the, little, uh, the, the little C church, the church universal, is the big category, and the big C church is a smaller category that exists within that body. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you can be a Christian, that is a believer, and not belong or attend or really have any interest in any particular church, right? So you can be, the, uh, to use a sports term, you can be a free agent Christian. You can have no denominational, institutional, or even local congregational ties and be a Christian, okay? 
Um, and, and, and this actually gets worked out in the drive-through and drive-in churches because they're mostly interested in seekers, in visitors, in outreach to the non-church. In fact, um, in Willow Creek, uh, average church attendance on a Sunday is far larger than church membership at Willow Creek. Here at this church, at First Presbyterian of Atlanta, it's the opposite, right? Our average church attendance is much smaller depending on the Sunday, than our overall church membership. But at Willow Creek, it makes sense. They're trying to bring in as many as possible. The idea of membership or regular participation is not unimportant, but it's certainly less important and less significant because what they want to build, what they want to build is the Little C Church. That is the theology, I think, of the drive-in, drive-through church. Calvin, back in the 16th century, saw things quite differently. In fact, Calvin saw things completely opposite, 180 opposite from this. For Calvin, the big category was the big C church, and the little category, the category within that, was the small C church. What that meant for Calvin is he just assumed he didn't have a category for someone being a believer, a, a true follower of Christ, and not being in an actual church. Calvin, that was literally implausible for him. Now, I don't think he thought that maybe it was technically impossible, but I think he thought generally and usually and typically a believer, a Christian, a little C church person is always going to be connected into the big C church. But he thought that not everyone connected to the big C church was a true believer, right? So he thought that there were members of big C churches that weren't actually part of the little C body of Christ. Does that make sense? Think about his context coming from kind of uh, a pushback against Catholicism, right? He, he had this idea that you could be an institutional big C church person, but not be a little C church person. Now, in fairness, I think that Calvin's a bit wrong, and I think that the evangelical view is a bit wrong. I think there's actually a happy medium between the two, uh, represented uh, by this Venn diagram. That is, typically and regularly, there's an overlap of the little C church and the big C church. Christians, members of the Little C Church, are members of the Big C Church. But there are also outliers. To be sure, it's possible that there are people uh, that are church members who are not believers. I think that's possible. I think it's also possible that there are believers who are not church members, right? But in my view, I think in this, and this is broadly the Reformed view of things, there's much overlap. And the expectation is that Little C Church people are Big C Church peoples. And that's not the case of the drive-in, drive-through church. Um, so here's my question then. Does that make sense, first of all? See where we're going on this? Okay. Um, here's my question then for you. What's potentially lost when the little C church is emphasized over the big C church? Okay, community could be part of it. Connectivity. Yeah, I like that, Walt. That's right. Structure organization. I would say the ability yeah. to have an adult relationship with Christ. Yeah. Okay. It's teaching as a child in your in Okay. So it keeps you as a child. So it's something about a stage of belief. I, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Because it doesn't demand much of it. Well, it's very individualized, 
right? It puts a strong emphasis, and this is not a bad thing, it puts a strong emphasis on you and Jesus, you and your Bible. It's, 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 Margaret, it was you earlier who talked about a vertical relationship. It's pure vertical. It's pure vertical, abstracted from any relationships. So what's lost? So you can go and sit in your car and listen. Or you can go and uh, drive through and get your church, right? You're satisfying, in a sense, your spiritual needs, but you're, there's no connectivity to a broader body. And actually, that's a really weird concept in the Bible. The Bible speaks uniformly and consistently about God relating in covenant with people, not a person. Of course, there are persons within peoples, but God relates communally with people. That is the normal and consistent way, both in the Old Testament and, by the way, in the New Testament, of God's relationship to people, to communities, right? So I think, in a sense, what's potentially lost is then is what you're all naming, the corporate or communal sense of spirituality, uh, the community breakfast, the Bible study, the small group, the prayers, uh, the breakfast, the fellowship hour, the sorts of things we call a connection at, at this sort of church is lost, potentially at least, if the little C church is emphasized over and against the big C church. So that's point one. Um, let me go to the second uh, kind of, I don't know if I want to call it a critique, but a potential question for us about these sorts of, ch of church. The second is, what are the effects of what I'm going to call the virtual service? An increasing, increasing number of megachurches today are now offering sermons and sometimes whole church services online. Willow Creek Community Church, as an example, you can get sermons and midweek fellowship gatherings online. It would sure eliminate the problem of traffic that we uh, face here in our great city of Atlanta. Um, you can stream past videos and audio, you can download mp3s, you can subscribe to them as podcasts. From a purely technical, technical standpoint, what Willow Creek does with digital media is beautiful and amazing. It's impressive that they have the bandwidth with to do what they do. Now it helps that uh, they have a $600,000 budget per week. $31 million a year in their budget goes to what we call communications. Is that good, John? <laughs> Just communications. Now, the product they produce is truly extraordinary, and you saw a glimpse of that, um, right? Because what we were watching was the video packaging of their worship service, and you saw the multiple camera angles and what they were doing, okay? Potentially even more impressive is 10 miles up the road at North Point Church. Uh, it is the largest church in the U.S. as of 2010, uh, it, or 14, excuse me. It's led by Andy Stanley, 36,000 each weekend in worship between their six campuses. Um, uh, but none, none, in, no individual site is as large as Willow Creek's uh, South Barrington campus. North Point Community Church is the namesake and flagship of North Point Ministries, the parent organization of a total of six churches, including things like the Buckhead Church and the Decatur City Church. But when it comes to the movie theater quality production of digital media, uh, North Point out Willow Creek's Willow Creek. Each service begins not just with a title or a theme, but a high-quality, network-ready uh, video trailer. Some are skits, some are dramatic videos. I need to just show you one, just to get a sense of the sorts of things they're producing on a weekly basis. 
This is their video output just for a normal week. This is an Easter, this isn't a special Sunday. It's just what they do each week. And that's just the beginning. Each week begins with a new theme and a new uh, video product that looks like that. Imagine, I don't know what their budget is, I couldn't find those numbers, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's larger than Willow Creek when it comes to communications. There's a lot to affirm, I think. Do all oh, please. They do, and I'm going to say more about that in the next point, because there's something very interesting happening with how they do their video. Uh, now, there's a lot to affirm, I think, about this. It's, uh, it's an impressive resource. All of these things are impressive. They're beautiful from an aesthetic quality. Um, they're great for those who might not be able to attend, and for all these reasons, they're good things. And after all, uh, even a church like this, on a smaller scale, of course, does many of these things. We have a live worship that you can tune into. We have access to sermons and lectures and movies online. You can access this course as a digital project. It's not going to look exactly like that, but you can access this course as a digi digital product uh, and a podcast. So we're doing, and many churches do in small scale what these uh, churches do in large scale. Um, uh, I actually had an occasion to talk to someone uh, here at First Pres who said he had, uh, he had never missed a service, I think in something like 20 years, but had never stepped in the door. So it works. There's something great about that. Now that's one out of many, many, many people who experience this church differently, but still, there are great stories out there. But what is potentially lost when virtual replaces reality in our experience of church? What's potentially lost? Well, it is very, very similar to the sorts of things. Connectivity, community, all of these sorts of things are definitely lost. Uh, the community breakfast, the fellowship, the singing, the, any sacramental sense. I don't any, think that's right. There's not a lot of rub and elbows uh, in this experience. Um, there's no intergenerational contact. Uh, now, I should say that there's not much intergenerational contact in the actual buildings of those churches anyway, uh, but that's a different issue and a, a, a different reason. Um, all of it, I think, what's potentially lost is what I call embodied spirituality. We were never meant to be Christians only in our minds, only in this sense of I pray, I think, I read, I have my devotional, and it's just all here. Christianity is always meant to be experienced and embodied in, in through various practices, rituals, smells, tastes, sights. I mean, think of the, uh, the incarnation. I mean, the very existence of Jesus in the world speaks to an embodied spirituality. Jesus didn't come down as an idea or a concept or, or even some sort of like uh, ethereal ghost sort of figure. Jesus came in flesh and blood. And in many ways, I think our experience of God and our experience of faith ought also to be in flesh and blood, or that is, 
incarnational. Uh, this, in fact, is the picture we get of the early church in Acts 2. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as they had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It's an embodied spirituality that we encounter in Acts 2. Here's the main issue, though, I think I have with, the, with this kind of movie theater quality experience. It's that the virtual, that is the video, doesn't kind of augment the reality, it replaces it, right? So it's one thing if you have a robust uh, kind of, if, if the purpose is to be here gathered together in body, and then look, when you can't make it, sure, you access the video. But that's not the point in these other churches. They actually speak very openly about couch members. It's a category. They, 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 well, it, it adds exactly to that, a, a passivity, right? It's just, it's a consumer model, actually. It's kind of like, um, it, it treats church kind of like a TED Talk in a way. It's like, it's very interesting, but I can just like tune in from wherever and just get it. I can download it into it. I don't have to be involved in it in any way. So again, there's a lot to affirm about it. Please hear that. Uh, but I think there's a problem when virtual replaces reality as kind of a missional strategy um, completely. Let me move on to, there's two more to do and they're a little bit shorter. Uh, the third point is what I call the projected pastor. Now, North Point, the church we've been mentioning, is virtual in another way. It has, uh, I believe it has five campuses, but on Sunday, there's only one preacher. Now, how do you have one preacher preach at five different campuses in Atlanta traffic? Well, it's not possible. Unless you have a $250,000 high-definition projector that creates a life-size 3D image of the pastor at each and every location. It's essentially a hologram. They don't call it that, but it's essentially a hologram. Uh, Andy Stanley is typically the preacher. He does not announce where he's going to preach so as to avoid people trying to flock to that site. And so I know people who go to this church and have seen the sermon and didn't know it wasn't Andy Stanley there in the flesh and blood. The quality of this is, is incredible. It, and especially if you're far enough back, you're looking at a human and he's not there. So, this is actually not all that, well, that particular version of it is very specific to Andy Stanley North Point Church. Although I should say that over 2,000 U.S. congregations now operate multiple campuses and many of them are also video venues. That is, they're projecting in a pastor from someone else. So it's really just you and the screen in this particular uh, context. On the plus side, um, a guy like Andy Stanley is a very gifted communicator and leader. Like, he's not hard to listen to. I mean, he's very powerful, particularly in that theological context. There's a lot to like about him. Um, but what's lost, though, when you lose actual flesh and blood pastoral presence? What's the impact on pastoral leadership? Well, one of the things, and I'll do this quickly, that I think you lose is this great theology the Reformed churches, Protestant churches, have had since the Reformation of a priesthood of all believers, right? This idea that you have to project in the pastor 
actually really elevates the, that one particular pastor. It's kind of a cult of pastor in a way. Like you're at Andy Stanley's church. You're not at the Buckhead Church or Decatur City Church. You're at Andy Stanley's church, right? It eliminates the idea that, that the, the ministry is something participated in by all believers. Not just a, a, a pastoral staff, although that's also true, but also all believers. Luther, though did not, he did not use the, the phrase priesthood of all believers, he simply believed that all Christians are priests and all priests are Christian. And Calvin had very similar ideas. And since uh, the Reformation, this has been a key idea in Protestant churches. And I think it's lost here. There's kind of a return to a, to a, a very uh, stringent hierarchy of who is warranted to do ministry. It's not even the pastoral staff at North Point. It's Andy Stanley. So much so that you have to project him in to other churches. Now let me get you out of here on this. I've got one final point. Um, I call it, uh, oops, sorry, I'm, I'm a click behind here. The last point here I call liturgitainment. Liturgitainment. One characteristic of all of these experiences is that they are super slick, highly polished, TV quality performances. They are, in fact, performances. And I'm not saying that they aren't worship, but they also uh, are, are, worship, are uh, uh, performative, to be sure. Uh, at Willow Creek, uh, they premiere new songs. They produce playlists and albums for purchase, of course, in the bookstore afterwards. They have great guest musicians come in, like Chris Tomlin and Rebecca St. James. And of course, um, you can download all of the music on iTunes, all of this stuff. Um, if we had time, I would show you another uh, clip of how great this stuff is. But again, there's a lot to be impressed by. There's a lot to affirm. Um, these services definitely feel more modern than the Blue Hymnal, and some like that, and some want that experience. Some are not uh, organ folks. Um, and it might be attractive to outsiders, to be sure. I get that, and I want to affirm that. Um, my point is not that churches should be boring, or church services should be boring, or that music should be boring, or sloppy, or poorly done. We have it, uh, an incredible organist at this particular church, and I am grateful each Sunday for the high quality of that of the art that we produce. And this is not to mention the choir and the orchestra and other such things. Again, the problem is, though, uh, is when entertainment replaces something. What happens if worship is so entertainment-oriented? Well, I think one thing you lose is a sense of liturgy. Right, a sense that there's this communal participation. The word liturgy literally means public service or public work. The work of a worship service is not a performance. It's not something we sit back and entertain by. Now, maybe we are entertained at, at your churches. Perhaps it is, and, and, and that's not a bad thing. Um, but the point is that, that, that liturgy is participatory. It's a work that's to be done by the people. And, and, and I believe that our encounter with God uh, matters when we do things like corporate confessions and calls to worship and affirmations and doxologies, things that might not seem as entertaining and yet I think are integral to how we experience and interact with God and with one another in this profound experience of worship that we call church. And I do want to leave room, of course, that people experience God in different ways. That is absolutely true. But I do wonder, again, about the values and habits that are reinforced by continual exposure to this variety of church. So in conclusion, and really this is just a summary, um, in, in life and in our diets, as in our churches, a little drive-through um, doesn't hurt every once in a while. 
right? You can be a very healthy person and go through the line at McDonald's or Burger King. No big deal. Well, I think the same is true of church. I have no problem uh, with a little bit of this, uh, but as in our diets, a lot of it can have some long-term consequences for the health of our spirituality. If an emphasis on a little C church replaces the need for membership in a big C church, I think we have a long-term health problem. If online presence replaces community participation, I think we have a problem. If, if a great pastor replaces the priesthood of an all-believers, I think we have a problem. And if entertaining music replaces meaningful liturgy, I think, in the end, it'll be just a bit too much junk food. Thank you very much.